Our Lord, we come to you this morning uh, with a need for your spirit to speak to us and for uh, boldness and for courage to be able to proclaim your gospel in this world. We pray that we would hear that today, that we would see Peter and John coming before the council this day. Before threat and before opposition, we pray that even as we hear these words, our own hearts would be encouraged by it. Our hearts would be convicted freshly of the gospel and the need for the world to know Jesus. We pray that you would cause our hearts and our lives to be different as a result of hearing your word. Uh, We pray, O God, that you would even use me, um, a weak man, to be able to speak words of life and truth given from God. And so I pray that you would be with these words. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Life is made up of some things that are really worth pursuing. There's some pursuits in life that uh, many of you have endeavored on and set out on that are worth pursuing. But it almost seems like the best things in life, the things that are worth pursuing in life, are also some of the most risky things in life and the most paralyzing, daunting things in life to approach. What do I mean? Uh, Perhaps you've endeavored on or embarked on a new career or want some kind of a change in your life with work. And that could be a really rewarding endeavor. It could be a really worthwhile endeavor. But the chance of failure could be too risky and too daunting that you never step out and do anything. Or for some of you, I know that you're training for things like the Philly Marathon and for the Broad Street Run, things that could be really gratifying for us. But then again, things like Philly cheesesteaks could also be really gratifying for us. And so we put it off and we never get to the run. Or pursuing a relationship or pursuing marriage or pursuing uh, having children. Those could be things that are wonderful gifts for us. Uh, But we know what it's like to, to feel heartache and pain and disappointment. And so those things can be so debilitating to ever pursue because though it's great, It also comes with a lot that is difficult for us to endure. So we've got a lot of things in life that stir us, that move us, that cause us excitement. But on the other hand, they can also be the very things that paralyze us, that are too daunting for us ever to take on at all. Uh, In a much more weighty sense, if you're a Christian here, I think our experience with Jesus and his gospel can be very similar to some of these things. Right? It's a gospel that moves us. It moves our souls. It's, it's where our hearts and our affections are stirred for God because he forgives our sins. He shows us great mercy and grace and love. He, he gives us life. We've been so convinced, perhaps if you're here, we've been so convinced of it that we've said, no, I'm in on this. I want to be all in. Sign me up. Baptize me. Connect me with a small group. I'm all in for this. I'm in with Jesus and his church. It's a gospel that deeply moves us and stirs us. Uh, But on the other hand, it's also a gospel that can seem paralyzing to us. What do we mean by that? Well, I think you know the feeling. Uh, Perhaps you're here this morning. We're together on a Sunday morning like this, moved by Jesus and his gospel, all in with Jesus and his community, feeling like this is the greatest thing in the world that I get to be a part of. You think, man, I get to be a part of this. This is awesome. And then Monday morning rolls around, and what felt like the greatest thing in the world shrivels like dust to the ground when someone asks you, so what did you do this this weekend? Right, And all that was good about this weekend and being with God and his people and proclaiming the gospel and singing about it, all of that in an instance just shrivels to the ground, and you're like, oh yeah, you know, I just... 
I had some barbecue and I bowled. And that's pretty much all I did this weekend. And you're like, what? Uh, what just happened to this most amazing thing that has changed everything about your life? Uh, what happened? It's almost as if for some of us uh, Christians, the, the greatest desire in life, as well as one of the greatest fears in life, is that someone would ask us about Jesus. It's that tension that we feel. We love this. Uh, we're all in for this. And we want others to know this, but it's also the thing that can be really paralyzing for us and debilitating for us. Have you felt that tension before in your own life? Uh, Monday morning rolls around and this thing doesn't seem as sweet anymore. Uh, but would you hear me? Uh, one of the results or one of the evidences of those who have been flooded by the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, it means bearing witness of that reality to someone else. Right? One of the realities, one of the evidences that you have yourself received the gospel, been flooded in your own heart with the reality of Jesus, is that you would bear witness of that same gospel to someone else. It's not a gospel that just moves our hearts and makes us feel good, but it also moves out towards others. Jesus himself, when he was on this earth, he has said that we would be his witnesses in this world, that we were actually going to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. So Seven Mile Road, would you hear this morning that mission, being a witness to the gospel of Jesus, both by our words, the, the things that we speak, and by the things that we do, especially today we're going to consider by our words, is not optional for the Christian. Uh, witness, mission, evangelism, those kinds of things. It's not optional. It's not one of the things that you say, maybe I'll take that, maybe. That's not my person. Mission is not optional for the Christian. And that's going to be a truth that we'll hear today. Uh, me and my wife, Stephanie, we take trips to Dallas pretty often because my wife has family down there. And for many, many good reasons, Philly is nothing like Dallas. And I rejoice in that. But... One of the things that you'll notice when you go to Dallas is that there are churches pretty much on every corner in Dallas, and it's actually a beautiful thing to see. I mean, they've got humongous churches where this whole property would just be their closet. I mean, there's gigantic churches. They've got one called the Baptodome because it's, it's essentially just one gigantic stadium, massive churches in Texas. Meanwhile, in Philly, <clears throat> Right down the street where me and Stephanie spent our early years of marriage in Maniunk, they're converting old church buildings into apartment complexes. And that's what's happening here, where you've got stained glass as your front window. That's what's happening in Philly. We're not all that into Jesus and religion up here, or not as much as we used to. So when you, Jesus calls us to be witnesses in a place like Philly, uh, you wonder and you ask, you'd be tempted to ask, are you sure Philly is on that list of places that we've got to bear witness? Because it seems very difficult to do that here. Because in this kind of a culture, in this kind of an environment, we can feel ill-equipped. Right? We can feel like we have no influence on anyone or anything. We've got no convincing arguments to make anyone believe in Jesus. We can feel weak, we can feel fragile and hopeless that Jesus could accomplish anything through our church or through our lives in this city with the gospel. Listen, I hope and pray that for many of us, that God would give us some wonderful stories of people coming to know Jesus through your witness, 
I pray and hope that that would happen, where neighbors are being given the gospel, co-workers are responding to the gospel, where family members are hearing and your dining tables are surrounded with people who want to know more about Jesus. Uh, But what happens when you are opposed? When people push back against you about the gospel? What happens when you feel entirely inadequate for this task and when no one wants to hear a word of what you want to say? They think you're crazy for believing it. What happens when you are opposed for proclaiming the gospel? Our text in this book, the book of Acts, is asking us this question today. What will you do when you face opposition to the gospel? What will you do when you speak the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and what you get in return is opposition Uh, rejection, pushback against the gospel. Perhaps some of you are especially considering that today, or you will one day. You know what it feels like to be there, to believe something with all of your heart, and then when you get on the ground, it just feels like it's not enough, or you're not enough. You're not adequate enough to, to communicate this great gospel. But Acts will also give us great assurance this morning as we ask this question. So here's the big idea of what I want us to hear today. Here's the big idea of our text in Acts 4. That our sovereign God empowers inadequate people like us to boldly proclaim Jesus to a hostile world. All right, I'll say that again. Our sovereign God empowers inadequate people like you and me to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a hostile world. So in our passage that Amy read for us, it's a big passage, there's 31 verses in this text today. So to give us some better handles to understand it, behind me on the screen you'll see sort of the outline of how we'll move through this passage. So follow with me as we go through this passage in Acts 4, it's on page 911 in the Black Bibles in front of you. Uh, if you're new, while you're turning there, if you are new here, just to catch you up to where we are uh, in preaching here, we've been preaching in this ser- sermon series on the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is a book that sort of records the early accounts of the church and what took place when Jesus established his church on the ground. And what we have been seeing is that Jesus, working through the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, has a massive, uh, successful story to the start of the, the church on earth. It's, it's massively growing. It's exponentially growing. There's a lot of success that we're seeing. The church went from 120 people to thousands just like that. And the church is booming. The church has met with uh, incredible conversion amounts. And there's all kinds of success happening in this church. But what we'll see today, for the first time in the book of Acts, the church is now met with some serious opposition. Serious opposition that will uh, threaten to put a halt to this whole thing. Uh, We heard a couple of weeks ago that God, through Peter and John, uh, as they were preaching, as they were walking, healed a lame beggar who was sitting by the temple gate. It's a tremendous event, right? This, This passage that we're in is coming off the heels of that. A tremendous event where this lame beggar is healed of his sickness, and it's reminiscent of what Jesus would do when he even himself walked this earth. And so now you're sort of seeing pictures of Jesus come up in the lives and ministries of the apostles. And and yet, as the church rapidly grows, as the numbers increase and people are getting healed, this whole thing gets shut down. 
right? Massive success, and the whole thing now gets shut down. And this passage is a a quick reminder to us that the Christian life is not about the joyride upward where everything is nice and easy and smooth sailing for us. It's a quick reminder for us to say this thing was going great, but whoa, this this is going to get hard. There's going to be opposition in this world. It's not the false brand of Christianity that is marketed to us by some TV preachers that tell us that all that you have in life is going to be wealth and prosperity and the good life. This passage comes to us and says, no, that is not the Christian life. In fact, this passage shows, shows for us it's almost the opposite of that. There is hardship that's endured. There is opposition endured. And so reading from... Uh, Acts 4, verses 1 to 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. As we've seen uh, in a mo- as we'll see in a moment, these leaders they were offended by what Peter and John were speaking uh, of the gospel that was being preached. It was one that threatened for these leaders, for these people in power, their authority. They, Peter and John, even accuse, as you'll see in a moment, them of being culpable in the death of Jesus Himself. So it's no wonder that these leaders would shut this whole thing down. It's not a surprise. Uh, but as people are hearing these words of Peter and John, before, before they come in and get arrested, as people hear these words from Peter and John, what has offended these temple officials has felt like to these people a warm blanket for their souls. What has been so offensive of a gospel to these people have for others felt like the best thing in the world that they could hear. Uh, offensive gospel for one, but an honest gospel for others. It's like the truth about who they really are has been outed. They no longer have to hide. And though it's terribly hard to hear who they are, it's the most freeing thing ever because they no longer have to play this game of acting like everything in this world and their life is okay. It's the most freeing thing. Though it is hard to hear, the gospel feels like a warm blanket for them because they know their lives are not perfect. They know that their, uh, their situations and the world is broken. They know they're not crushing it as spouses and parents. They know their sins feel like they will never overcome them. They know that the sins that they struggle with over and over again feel like they are taking over. So in those kinds of places, for us, for you, the worst thing for us to hear, for them to hear in life is that in a broken world that's obvious is to hear, you're doing great. You're knocking it out of the park. Just keep going with where you're going. Keep trying. It will get better. That's the worst thing for people who are broken, all of us, to be able to hear. Because it will never get better. It will never over... We will never defeat these things in our lives. We will never overcome our sin on our own. Rather, some of them hear from Peter and John that they have a lustful and wicked heart that they do desire praise from other men and women, that they are knee-deep in sin and depression and worry, that they are angry and unloving people. Harsh words. But then the greatest news is that if they find Jesus, if they know Jesus, if they put their trust in Jesus, 
They can be forgiven and saved in this world. And so what happens? As Peter is preaching, right? Peter is preaching this sermon mid-sermon. These officials come in to where they are and they arrest Peter. And they arrest John. And it's as if while Peter is preaching this sermon, while John and Peter are speaking in this area, it's like they're being dragged off in cuffs. It's like Peter makes one last plea and says, do you want some of this? Would you, if you want some of this, come forward. And everyone's watching him on stage being dragged off in cuffs. And they're like, I think we're good. I think we're good. Like, we, we, don't, we don't want that to happen to us. Good luck in jail. But I think we're good. That's actually not what happens at all. What happens? This gospel, whom Peter and John are about to go to jail for, is so compelling that over five, at least 5,000 people, 5,000 people believe in Jesus as a result of what they hear as they watch Peter and John being drugged out to jail before the court. It's unbelievable. 5,000 people with that kind of a scene. And so now Peter and John are brought before these big shots, before this courtroom. These are the cream of the crop. These are the people with the big titles and the big robes. They're like the Rockefellers and, and the Kennedys and like Vatican City all combined. These are big shots. Meanwhile, you pan over, the, the camera pans over to Peter and John, and they're standing there. And these are just fishermen who probably smell like fish. And their hands are all cut up. And they've got nothing impressive about them. What are they doing here? What are they doing standing before all of these big shots? They are way out of their element. These guys would be better suited on a boat with a fishing rod and they'd be golden. That's where they belong. Some of you thrive at work or in certain social activities. And you're in your element when you're there. Right? Those are the areas where you thrive. If you know Joe Varghese who goes to church here, here's this unassuming Indian guy that you would walk and talk with, but when he gets on the basketball court, it's like he transforms into Steve Nash, and he just goes berserk. Right? That's, he's in his element there. But these men, they are no Joe Varghese on the basketball court. They don't belong there before these elites. They are out of place. They don't belong. They should just get their fishing rods and go home. And yet, see what happens beginning at verse 5. Reading from verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the leaders, 
saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. All of a sudden, Peter, who has no lick of formal theological training, who doesn't come from an elite family with power or influence, speaks the most compelling, clear, bold words to these powerful men with incredible authority to wipe them out. Right? This man who does not belong here at all speaks with incredible boldness. He states his case regarding the healing of the man when they ask a question. He proclaims Jesus as the only one who saves. He even says that they are responsible for killing God himself. I mean, if you're trying to escape from this situation, that's not the route that you would go. But he speaks boldly. This man who's a nobody. So how is it possible that this inadequate, unqualified fisherman who is completely out of his element could speak with such boldness. Where does he get that from? Well, the writer of Acts, Luke, takes note that Peter didn't just speak from himself. Right? In verse 8, it says that Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And that actually points us back to another book that Luke wrote, the Gospel according to Luke. And in the gospel according to Luke, here's what Jesus says in Luke 21, verses 12 and onwards. This is what he says. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you, and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought forth before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and I will give you wisdom which none of your adversaries would be able to withstand or contradict. That's Jesus' words to them, telling them what's going to happen and telling them how it will happen. So Jesus has already said this very day would come when people would come against them and oppose and persecute them. And instead of painting this bleak, horrible picture of what that day will look like, Jesus says, that's an opportunity for you to bear witness of the gospel. When you are faced before this council, that's going to be your opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to bear witness of my name. And what's more, Jesus says, do it without any notes. That's what he says in verse 14 in this Gospel of Luke 21. He says, settle it therefore in your minds when you're before these people, when you're, when you're faced with opposition, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Right? You hear that? For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. If you've ever watched Shark Tank, Right? It's a great show where you have all these big shot billionaire moguls trying to be convinced to invest in some uh, nobody entrepreneur who has this wacky idea, right? So you have these, these guys coming in before these big shots. It's sort of like the picture that you might even see in Acts. Uh, they have entrepreneurs coming through this door, and what do they do? What do these entrepreneurs do? They have this big, big planned out premeditated pitch that they have to convince these sharks to, to buy in, to invest into them, and to be convinced of what they're trying to give them. And here, 
right? Here is Peter, literally with his life on the line, right? This is not Shark Tank. Instead, Jesus is like, people are going to persecute you. Uh, it will happen, but don't think about it. Just ignore that it's going to, don't even prepare, don't, don't do any preparation. I've got you, bro. Just, it's going to be okay. Just trust me. I've got you. Don't do any preparation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you when you are in that moment. I mean, their lives are literally on the line. And Jesus says, listen, settle it in your minds. Don't, don't do anything beforehand. I will give you words. If you know me, I'm, any meeting that I go into, I have a full manuscript written out before I do it. I, I am so cowardly when it comes to speaking off the cuff. I need everything scripted out to me right in front of my face to be able to speak anything. Any joke that you hear in this sermon is completely manuscripted. If you see me smile or laugh, it's because my manuscript tells me to do so. In fact, that was just manuscripted as well. It's right here. Everything I do is prepared. I need to know what I'm going to say. I need to know how I'm going to say it. I need to be able to convince myself that I'm prepared enough to convince you of what I'm saying. But for Jesus, what does he tell these disciples? Is he saying, you know, I'm, I'm anti-intellectualism. I don't want you to prepare anything. I don't want you to study the Bible. I don't want you to go to seminary or prepare for anything ever regarding gospel proclamation. No, he's not saying that one bit. But I think what he is saying is that he doesn't want our courage or our boldness to come from our preparation or our ability. Does that make sense? Listen, he doesn't want your full courage in this thing, your sufficiency to be what brings you to the next point of having a successful anything. He wants you to trust him and to allow the Holy Spirit to give you words and to give you wisdom. As I heard one preacher say this week, this is Jesus reminding us in love that your boldness is not about you performing well. Your boldness is about me being with you in that moment. And that's what Peter and John have in this moment before the council. In fact, look at what these officials note about Peter's speech. In verse 13, it says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These officials, having heard what they're saying, they didn't say, wow, that's some really good exposition. That's a really gifted orator. That's some talent right there. No, they said they recognized. They were astonished because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. When you are asked that question and are freaking out, when someone says, hey, I want to know more about Jesus, I want, would you tell me about Jesus, or what do you believe? When you're freaking out thinking, man, why didn't I go to seminary before? Why didn't I take one class to help me in this moment? How will I ever be qualified for this task of sharing the gospel? Jesus is saying to you, don't freak out. Peter didn't go to seminary either. But he knows me, and the Holy Spirit is with him. So you can trust that I am with you when you are faced with opposition, when you are faced with the opportunity to be able to proclaim the gospel in a situation that may not be so easy. 
And so as they hear these stunning and bold words from Peter, they are baffled. They are completely baffled at what to do with them. Because if you would remind yourself, there is this lame man who's just been healed. And there's evidence because he's actually standing right beside them. It's like exhibit A. He's right there. They just, through God's power and the Holy Spirit, just healed this man. Peter and John claim that it was Jesus who did the healing. And they say Jesus is God. That's what it starts saying at verse 14. Here's, here's what happens next. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But in order that they may spread no further among the people... Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they call them and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So these leaders, these officials, these people who are going to now decide what to do, they've got no option. They're cornered. So their best bet is just to threaten them, threaten Peter and John to stop speaking about Jesus, to stop speaking about the gospel and the resurrection, to just end that if you don't do anything, we can, we, can, we can squelch this thing and be done with it. Right? Imagine for yourself, what would this moment be like for you? It's hard for us to imagine this kind of a moment because in this moment in America, uh, we don't get arrested for preaching the gospel. We're not put before court saying, hey, stop doing this. You, you can't do this. This is not right. This is not legal for you to do. Uh, but if I were, I don't know, I might say, I gave it a shot. You know, I tried once, I tried saying something, but maybe I made a mistake. In fact, 5,000 people just came to believe in Jesus. That's, that's the quota for a lifetime for a Christian. I think I'm good. I think I can call it quits and be done. When you follow Jesus all the way through, without compromise, there are some serious risks that you take. Right? When you sign on to this thing, when you take Jesus... He saves you. There are some serious risks when you follow through in this life and being a Christian. For you guys, for me, you know what it's like to lose friendships because you follow Jesus. Uh, You know, perhaps, in the places that you work or places that you hang out, what it's like to be marginalized in social circles because you've been labeled as the religious guy who believes in God. And we can't see that God, but you believe in him for some reason. You've been labeled as that nutcase right? You know what it's like for Jesus to be trampled on and seen as a crutch for you to cope with life. Uh, You know the arguments against your faith. You know what it's like to not only feel the external pressures from people saying that it's a joke, but you also know the internal wrestling that you have. Is this all true? Having heard all of these, these arguments, is this thing even true? Is this real? Is it worth it to continue fighting for this? Some of you know what it's like to have family who have disowned you because you followed Jesus. The cost of that, it's, it's immense. It's difficult. Peter and John were risking their friendships, their associations, their reputations, their families, and even their lives because both of them would soon be executed for their faith in Jesus. And that's how their story pans out. But what do Peter and John say in response to knowing what could happen? Here's what they say in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard and experienced with Jesus. We've, we've tasted him. We've felt him. We've, we've known him. We've walked with him. We can't help but speak of this. And with boldness and conviction, they respond by saying, whatever the cost, whatever the risk, we will not keep silent about Jesus. We won't keep silent about what we know is true. When you read words like that, doesn't their faith and their zeal inspire you to be like that, to have that kind of resilient faith? Even if you're not a Christian here, could you imagine how much they believed in this thing? How much they gave their life to this thing that they would count everything as loss, even their own lives, for the sake of Jesus and his gospel? Peter and John are not just mostly convinced that Jesus is true and that sin is real and that we need saving through Jesus. They're not just mostly convinced of this thing. Peter and John are not saying to this council, I know this life doesn't satisfy. I know your sin will lead to a horrible life beyond the grave. I know that you are wrecked. I have gotten an answer, though. His name is Jesus. But you know what? He's not that important. Who am I to say to you that, that you need him? Who am I to say that you need saving from wreckage and ruin and sin and death? No, they are saying there is one whose name is above every other name, who can save, and his name is Jesus. And we can't keep our mouths from speaking about his life, giving salvation for you. It's so real to us that we can't help but speak about it. Is that how you feel about the gospel? Is that how it is, it is for you where you can't even help but speak this thing? There's cost, there's risk, there's all of that. But for the sake of others, especially, would you know that your, your proclamation of the gospel is for the sake of others? Christian, if, if you're not a Christian here, would you know if you hear the gospel being preached or proclaimed to you, it's for you. It's out of love for you. There's a lot of things that fight us doing this, right? Even though we would, we would be convinced of the rightness of this thing and the veracity of it, the truthfulness, the usefulness of it, all of that, there is in us a deep need to be liked and to be respected and accepted by those around us. Uh, one of the questions I dread being asked by people is, what do you do for a living? I dread that question. I'll be at a social event or when I used to have hair at a barber shop, and that question always comes up. What do you do for a living? I was at the gym the other day, and this guy tells me that he travels for work and does all this great work, and it's competitive, and it's, it's tough, but he finds a lot of enjoyment in it. And I'm just trying to ask him more questions just to keep the conversation going, knowing that his question to me is inevitable, that it's going to come. And then he asks me with great excitement, what do you do? I sort of mumble, I'm a pastor. And he's like, I, I can't hear you. I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing just deflates, and he looks at me like, okay, he looks, I might as well just said, I'm a, I'm a guy who dresses up as a unicorn and sells ice to Eskimos. I mean, it was the most bizarre thing to now, and that's happened to me many times. 
And I try to skirt around it or not make it a big deal, but I want them to know I'm not just bumming around at home. I do something. But man, like that, that just completely changes the conversation almost every time for me. This guy was great. He was, we had a great conversation, but you could tell I was now different to him. Right? You know what it's like when people find out that you're a Christian. You come out and they realize you're a Christian now all of a sudden. Now you're different. And you're now pegged as, all right, well, we can hang around you, but we're going to do our own thing as well on the side. Right? It's not a very popular distinction for us to have. We're not all that cool anymore or popular. Uh, but hear these words from Proverbs 29, verse 25, as a good word for our hearts. For us who tend to fear man more than God. For us who seek the approval of people rather than the creator who created us. Hear these words from Proverbs. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This proverb warns us and it assures us at the fear of man, the desire to please one another, to be accepted by man, for them to applaud us, for them to like us. The whole thing's a trap. It's a trap and it's not going to work. The desire that we have of, I want to be liked. I want to be accepted. I want you to see me as equal to you. Actually makes you a slave to their approval. Right? And so what happens is, rather than considering Jesus Christ, you are a slave to them and they are running your life or whoever that is. And what you have sought to, to, to desire is now replaced with this thing you don't even know what makes sense of. And you're no longer worshiping God. You're worshiping man and you're not satisfied. And so Proverbs reminds us that, listen, it's true that it's difficult. We want to be accepted. That's, that's, that's natural. But it's a trap. It's not going to go anywhere. Rather, would you find refuge in Jesus? Because even if the entire world came against you, you are safe in him. And you're on the right side of this. Peter and John, after these words, are threatened some more by the council but then released because they can't charge them with anything. They've got nothing on them. And so as soon as they are released, verse 23 tells us that they go to their friends and tell them what just happened. And as soon as they go there, right, it's this beautiful picture of gospel community. They didn't just retreat and go and be alone after this terrible ordeal and after they were released. They didn't just go and have time with them and God. They immediately went to be with their friends. That's what the scriptures tell us, it says, us in, ver it says in verse 24 uh, that they, in 23, that they went home to be with their friends. They took this great ordeal and went with their friends, right? That speaks something to us of what and how we consider gospel community here. And then together with their friends, they prayed, verse 24, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
It's a lot. We won't cover everything that's in there. But in this prayer, these believers, uh, these people who are now in the midst of opposition, and there's great persecution now awaiting them, they know this is not going to go well. They know that there's a hard road ahead. These believers show us that we are to lean in to the sovereignty of God when we face opposition for the gospel. That's how they open their prayer. Sovereign God, you've created everything. They go on to say that because everything that has happened so far leading up to this very moment, people who tried to snuff out Jesus, people who tried to kill him, Pilate and Herod, and all of them were under the rule of God, and God actually predestined all of this to take place. In fact, those who tried to kill Jesus and did kill Jesus, they thought it would stop this whole thing. They thought it would stop the message, but not only did Jesus resurrect from the grave, but now thousands are being witnesses of Jesus and his gospel, and his gospel is going to continue to move out into the world. Whatever opposition that you face, would you know that nothing has stopped the gospel from moving forward because there is more than just human hands behind this. There's a God who through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ enables you to proclaim this gospel in this world. God will not be thwarted. He will not be rivaled. Nothing can stop his saving power from sweeping through the world. And that's good news for us when we feel defeated and deflated as witnesses of the gospel in life. Because whatever resistance you face, whatever opposition you face, whatever inadequacy you face... It is within the sovereign reign and rule of God. And so we can witness and we can fail. We can have the wrong words and not always say things perfectly. We can have a hard conversation with a friend or family member or neighbor about the gospel and trust that God is with us in it, that we are safe. We can feel inadequate. We can feel like we are outside of the realm of comfort and yet be perfectly in the will of God, to be used as his witnesses in this city, in your neighborhoods, and to the people who would never expect to to believe and receive the gospel. In fact, when they pray about the persecution and threats that come up, as they know that these things await them, they don't pray even that God would just take these uh, oppositions, these threats, this persecution away. That's not what they pray. Would you notice what they pray? They pray for boldness, to continue speaking the gospel in the face of opposition, expecting that it's going to come. And as they pray, the room shakes, and the Holy Spirit actually filled them with bold confidence. He actually does it. He fills them with bold confidence to continue proclaiming the gospel. So as we close, I want us to consider just a few things to take away from this. First, would you remember that Jesus did all of this for us first before we can ever do this? Consider the things that we've even considered today. Jesus experienced great success, and then he faced serious opposition, fatal opposition to his death for us. Jesus was the one who seemed like a nobody, a carpenter's son without any formal education. Jesus resisted the temptation to follow man over God and did not hold back preaching and proclaiming salvation in him. And in all of it, he leaned in, knowing that God sovereignly orchestrated all of this, even the pathway to the cross, for God's glory and for your sake. So anything that we do, 
Anything that we proclaim, it's because he's done it first. And he empowers us to be bold in this life with the gospel. Two, would you pray for boldness to speak the gospel no matter the cost? Would you take this example that these believers in Acts had to pray? If you feel weak, if you don't feel especially courageous, if you feel inadequate for gospel witness, pray for boldness to speak the gospel no matter what the cost. These people in Acts, their insecurities, is not, they did not hinder them from pursuing mission. Instead, it drove them to prayer, to ask God to help. So this day, let's pray asking God individually and as a church for boldness here to proclaim the gospel when you are at work. If Acts teaches us anything, it's that God can use inadequate people like us to do a marvelous work for his glory. So pray for boldness. And then three, if you're not a Christian here, our hope is not that you would just think that we're cool and relatable. Our hope is not to just give you words that make you feel good. Our hope is to proclaim Jesus to you because he really is the thing that can save and satisfy. Jesus Christ is the one who saves us from our sins, who enables even in this room weak men and women like all of us to be able to live in life and to to wrestle with sin, imperfect as though we we may be. Jesus Christ is the one who gives us that. And so if you don't know Jesus this morning, here's an opportunity for you to respond to him as well. So Seven Mile Road, hear it again, that our God, our sovereign God, empowers inadequate people like us to boldly proclaim Jesus to a hostile world. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that even these words that were spoken would have the Holy Spirit infused into our hearts, uh, transformation, and that it would convince us that they are true. Convince us this day, O God, that our mere abilities, our limitations, our weakness of mind, our lack of feeling adequate would be for your praise and glory because you use people like us every day all over the world throughout history. You used Peter and John to be able to proclaim and preach a gospel even when we were unfit to do it. That's what you do. And so I pray, O God, that you would in this room Create bold witnesses for the gospel who are empowered by God through the Holy Spirit to proclaim Jesus and his gospel in this world, in our city, in our communities, in our families and friends, within our homes, around dining tables. We pray that you would give us the boldness and courage to be able to do that. We can't do it alone, so we need you, O God, to help us with that. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.